Welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. So, Joe, we've talked before on this podcast about passive investing, right? I seem to remember that. I'm sure we must have. In fact, I didn't. are there any other types of investing anymore? <laughs> <laughs> if we talked about um, investing, I'm sure we talked about passive investing. No, you're absolutely right. Uh, but I, I'm trying to think now... I guess that means we haven't talked about the sort of basis of passive investing, which is index construction, right? If you're going to invest passively, you need to be investing essentially in some sort of index or benchmark. Exactly right. So you could say, oh, I'm not going to make any choices in my investment. I'm just going to invest in the market. But even that has to have some definition. If it's the S&P 500, then whoever designs the S&P 500 is ultimately the one constructing your portfolio. So ultimately, someone is making a decision, even if you think you're sort of trying to take human discretion out of the process. Right. And there's really been an explosion in all types of indices recently, sort of growing in tandem with the big growth that we've seen in passive investing in general. One thing that gets bandied around quite a lot is that there are now more indices in the world than there are individual stocks, which, you know, stop and think about that for a moment. It's it's pretty amazing, although I, I guess, you know, you could say, given the amount of stocks available in the world, there's sort of an infinite number of combinations that you could get at that point. But it does suggest that something that was supposed to be a simple reflection of a particular market has sort of morphed into something else. Right. I think uh, Bloomberg's uh, Eric Balkunas had a really interesting column this week, you know, pointing out that, you know, there's only really 12 notes on an octave, but there's hundreds of millions of songs. And I think that's a pretty good analogy for the relationship between individual components and indexes. And of course, there's essentially an infinite number of ways that you can arrange them and weight the components and weight them by size or factor or whatever. So it's not surprising that there is an incredible amount of interest and importance placed on a index construction these days. Right. And people's thinking about this indexation uh, kind of issue or explosion in indices, it, it tends to either be of, of that sort of ilk where people think, oh, well, it's it's natural that this is happening because we have these different varieties of indexes that you can build using different types of stocks. But there's another extreme end of this. And, you know, people who actually find it quite worrying and quite dangerous for one reason or another. And today, we are going to be speaking with someone who is firmly at that end of the discussion. I can't wait. This is a really important topic. I I joked in the beginning that is there any other type of investing besides passive? Because (laughs) it really does feel like that is swallowing everything. And I think there's a real existential question about the role of what used to be called discretionary investing, and so I think uh, there's, we're it's a great it's a great timely and timeless uh, topic for us. Yes, indeed. All right. So without further ado, our guest for this episode is Inigo Fraser Jenkins. He is a quantitative strategist over at Bernstein. You may remember him, listeners, as uh, the guy who wrote The Silent Road to Serfdom, Why Passive Investing is Worse Than Marxism. So I promise this is going to be an interesting discussion. Inigo, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me on. So 
Inigo, I guess my, my first question is, you've written quite a few notes about indexing at this point in time. Your latest one is sort of unusual in the field of analyst research. You know, it, it was called Fund Management Strategy, The Man Who Created the Last Index, and it's sort of a fictional slash historical look at index creation. How did you focus on this particular topic? Yes. Yeah, so when we think about the way investment works at the moment, I think this five trillion switch from active to passive that's taken place in the last decade is one of the biggest changes that we've seen. And I think that passive has a lot further to grow. I think that some people have interpreted some of our previous work, such as the one you just mentioned earlier, as us being anti-passive in some way. I wouldn't describe myself as anti-passive because uh, passive has done more to democratize access to capital markets than any other invention uh, in investing in the last couple of decades. But it does change the calculus for investors, uh, both at the micro level for an individual investor uh, and for society overall. And so for an individual investor, there's a question of how active and passive interact with each other in their overall holdings. For society overall, there are big implications for capital allocation and for stewardship. And I think that what this all comes down to is the relationship between a fund buyer and an asset manager uh, is changing and has further to change. Uh, and that's been driven uh, to some extent by the uh, increase in passive options uh, that are out there. Now, as you mentioned, we've written about this in, in research notes in the past. We want to do something a bit, di a bit different here by writing a work of fiction. Um, I mean, firstly, hopefully it's a bit more fun. It allows us to use kind of language that's not possible in a normal sell-side research note, but also allows us to approach the active passive split from uh, a few different uh, perspectives. Where do you see this showing up? So it's one thing to talk about changes in governance. It's another thing to talk about changes in capital allocation and how that goes about. But when you look at the market, you still see some stocks doing well. You still see some stocks doing badly, some companies thriving. Can you point to something happening in the market that's sort of independently observable and say, OK, here is a change in the way markets behave that we can associate with all the money leaving active and flowing into passive? I think the biggest issue here is just it's a question of what an investor expects to get out of an active manager. And I think we've um, seen some myths being blown up about that in the last decade or so. So uh, the idea that one could charge for beta uh, as as an active manager um, has been obviously debunked some time ago with the role of passive broad index funds. I think the next stage really is the idea of charging for factor beta, in a sense, uh, active managers who are actually just consistently hugging some factors in the market. Well, uh, now you can buy those factors. The current going rate is four basis points. I think smart beta will be free uh, within a year or so, at least in terms of headline fee, if nothing else. Um, and so that really kind of focuses attention on, on what the point of an active manager is. And so I think that's where the biggest uh, change comes here. I think there's been uh, perhaps a mistaken belief that because it's very easy to measure headline fee, uh, that has become the key determinant in so many fund allocation decisions. And when you look at the mm. allocations, both within active and within passive, in the last few years, more than 100% of the net flow has gone to the cheapest 20% of active funds and the cheapest 20% of passive funds. Now, on the one hand, that's great. And it's allowed uh, asset owners to lower their overall cost of uh, employing asset managers. But headline fee 
you know, only really matters to the extent that it influences the quality of the net of fee outcome. And I think that there needs to be a, a focusing of the minds about um, what kind of outcome people want from investment decisions. Um, and this sort of I guess, fits into a much bigger picture, which is the last 35 years, equities have gone up, bonds have gone up, and they've managed to do so in a way that's given a negative correlation between them. So an extraordinarily benign set of circumstances. Uh, and that has at least been part of the reason why, uh, at least with hindsight, it's made sense for people to allocate from active to passive. I think that if one projects forward from here and says, well, there are a number of reasons to suspect that we might be in a lower return world across asset classes. Um, and it raises the question of, well, uh, what is the outcome that people want? What is the real benchmark that investors care about? Uh, that real benchmark probably ultimately comes down to trying to fund retirement, uh, healthcare costs, school fees, etc. All those things trade more like CPI than like uh, a capital market return. So the question is, can um, uh, um, asset owners come to active managers uh, and buy um, a return stream, the net of fees will beat that. Um, that, in my mind, is an active decision, but it's been somewhat subsumed by everyone uh, assuming that the right thing to go and do is to hire uh, a series of active managers who can perform relative to a very specific benchmark and a series of pigeonholes across the market. Hmm. So could you maybe step back for a second and describe how we got from, you know, a, a sort of a relatively simple or simpler place where we had the Dow Jones index? I mean, when the Dow Jones index was invented, it had, I think, something like a dozen stocks in it. Yeah. And now we're at this place where we have hundreds, if not thousands of different indices and benchmarks of all different types and flavors, smart beta, uh, factor investing, whatever you want to call it. How did we actually get here? Yeah, so um, in the background to uh, doing this note was uh, spent some time reading the early work of Dow and Paul. And it's kind of fascinating to see uh, the motivation behind the work that they did. Um, the work of Dow and Paul was firmly in the camp of financial journalism, not in the camp of investing. Um, so uh, people may complain about price-weighted indices, but it was perfectly a sensible decision for Dow uh, if he wanted to report on the movement of the market the day before, simply to add up prices and divide them by the number of stocks uh, that he was using. Uh, apart from anything else, uh, without uh, modern calculating machines, it, it, hmm. it was hard to do uh, that work any other way. Um, and that was uh, a fair way to give a sense of uh, broad market uh, movements. You can go back before that to the work of Poor and his work on the uh, history of railroads in the U.S., uh, it doesn't seem like one's reading uh, a work of an index constructor when one picks up that book. But I would argue that one is because he has this massive enumeration of facts, which in this case are miles of new track laid each year and dividends paid by railroad companies. And it's basically a prose version of an index, I would argue. I guess um, as one roll the clocks forward, the question of indexing became kind of critical for solving the agency problem, which is always inherent if one goes out and hires an asset manager to run assets for you. you know, how do I know I'm getting good value for money uh, from this asset manager? How do I know they're doing something for me uh, that I couldn't get more cheaply uh, somewhere else? Uh, and of course, that's become a very uh, broadly embedded as the as the idea of needing to outperform a broad market index, and that's driven the initial role of passive. Um, but once one uh, accepts that idea that an index could be 
a rules-driven uh, approach to selecting kind of companies, as you said in your uh, introduction to this piece, uh, then suddenly the possibilities are endless. And who's to say that a given definition of broad index uh, is the benchmark that people have? Uh, and there are a massive number of other ways uh, of doing that. The question, I think, then becomes confused about whether one is uh, right in a given circumstance to get rid of an active manager and replace them with a passive manager, which, you know, that would be the right thing to go and do if that active manager was doing uh, nothing other than hugging a passive index. Uh, but that gets confused with the broader question of, well, what is the end outcome uh, that people want to have? And I think there's been almost a inversion in the direction of causation, if I can uh, say that, in the way people think about indices. Uh, the initial indices were there to uh, report on what had happened in the market the day before. Now the construction of new indices, particularly some of the smart beta indices, are actually directing capital allocation um, and become a uh, essentially a forward-looking kind of guide to where um, equity capital goes. Right. I think about this a lot. So, you know, we're talking about uh, smart beta. So for people who aren't necessarily familiar with it, this idea that there are factors within stocks that uh, by some sort of researchers have, uh, you know, characterized outperformance, whether it's stocks that are cheap on a P.E. basis or stocks that uh, exhibit high levels of momentum, things like that. And so this idea is that, well, why not just invest in an ETF or an index that captures all those things and don't you don't have to do the work? One thing I wonder about is like, OK, you make a interesting and important point that the issue for investors shouldn't be fees per se, but that return net of fees. That still raises the question of that even if there are active managers who can deliver superior performance net of fees, does the individual investor have any way to identify them? Um, I think the uh, investor needs to be clear about what kind of return stream they want from their active manager. So I, I think it's normal for people nowadays to uh, think about a manager as being a good manager if they deliver a return that uh, exceeds that of the index. But of course, if one goes to a manager, one's buying a whole bundle of uh, return streams all wrapped together in what their fund produces. Some of that's going to be market beta. Some of it will happen to be factors, as you outlined just earlier, in the form of smart beta. Uh, some of it will be very stock-specific decisions that the manager has made. I think the one really important change that's happening is by smart beta or these sort of simple factors essentially becoming free or something close to that. It really focuses attention on what one should get out of an active manager. Um, because it's always been possible uh, for more sophisticated investors, say, to uh, disentangle the kinds of return streams uh, that they've had from the fund manager. But it's been much harder to, to do that uh, more broadly uh, across the whole uh, 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 space of fund buyers. Um, and now that one can buy these factors essentially for free, a very important distinction gets made. And one can say, well, is this manager giving me a return stream that is idiosyncratic, I is different from um, this set of factors uh, that I can buy? I think that's an enormous important development because it allows us to say which kind of return streams become genuinely valuable for the asset owner, return streams you cannot get from simply holding a static uh, combination of factors. So I'd argue that actually with, um, with the uh, cheapening uh, of indices and the growth of more indices, 
uh, maybe ironically, it's actually made it much easier perhaps to now identify what one would want from an active manager, and that is idiosyncratic returns. Um, why is that not more reflected in flows into active management then? Because, you know, this is the discussion that comes up all the time with the explosion of passive investing. Uh, most people would say, well, eventually passive investment is going to misdirect capital or misallocate capital and there's going to be big price discrepancies that active managers can come in and exploit in some way, maybe by producing you know, idiosyncratic or specialized returns, as you put it. Why aren't we actually seeing that play out in the market then? Yeah, I think there are a few reasons that. I mean, I guess the initial answer is that the entire focus of fund selection uh, seems to be overly focused on headline fee. I mean, it's obviously very easy to identify headline fee up front ahead of time. Um, and as I said earlier, um, that has meant there's been a huge flow into the cheapest funds, uh, both within active uh, and within passive. Um, I guess another reason um, is that if one goes back 10 years, then yes, it's true. There were too many active investors who are charging an active fee for delivering something that was very close uh, to the index. And it's right that uh, someone has created a series of passive indices and taken capital uh, from those managers. I think where it gets more complicated um, is that, again, as I mentioned earlier, this has been an environment for 30, 35 years when, with hindsight, having a passive long-only exposure to equities and a passive long-only exposure to bonds has been uh, not only good from a return perspective, it's beaten CPI, but they've offered a diversification between them. If you go back over a longer horizon, that diversification is actually quite unusual. Um, so I think that some of the support that passives had um, has been a matter of circumstance and where we happen to have been from a macro perspective the last in a few decades, and that's going to evolve. Now, but now inevitably, it'll take time for people to realize that we're in a new uh, lower return world where bonds and equities aren't diversifying, uh, that will take some time uh, to be more broadly recognized. Uh, but when it does, it does change the calculus uh, between um, active and passive investing. Um, also, the, the other thing I would just p pick up on is your point about this discussion around does the market become inefficient in some way when there's so much passive uh, that it creates perhaps unusually good opportunities for active managers? Well, I mean, in theory, uh, we can say that that's the case. Um, I think in practice, it's very hard to identify. Uh, to my knowledge, no one has managed to theoretically identify where such a limit might uh, apply. We don't even know if the relationship between the amount of passive investing um, that exists in the market and the efficiency of the market is something that uh, is a, a linear thing that simply um, gets uh, uh, worse and worse over time as passive gets larger, or whether there's some tipping point. But what we can say is the case of Japan, where the penetration of passive investing has gone way beyond the 50% level uh, that the US has got to, uh, and the Japanese market uh, is still functioning. Um, so I think we can say that we should expect more growth uh, in passive to come, um, and that to identify a, a point at which there's uh, where we should expect a uh, mean reversion uh, back into um, active, I think, is uh, very hard and something that's very far off in the future.
Uh, I thought it was very interesting what you said about our faith in uh, passive strategies as being somewhat dictated by the backdrop of markets over the last few decades and the inverse relationship between stocks and treasuries, uh, I think is the same point made in our recent discussion with uh, Chris Cole of Artemis Capital about expectations of volatility. I think it's been a consistent theme on this uh podcast. I mean, Tracy said at the beginning, have we talked about passive? And we definitely have. But I do (laughs) think that a consistent idea that we've heard a lot of people discuss from a lot of uh, different angles has been this question of whether investors have been lulled into thinking that there's some strategy that's clearly the best strategy, but that it's only the best strategy, in fact, because of the certain behavior of markets over the last few decades, particularly the relationship between stocks and bonds that has made that the best strategy. So I'm curious if you could expand more on that and talk about why the way a lot of, uh, you know, maybe individual investors or more sophisticated investors have their portfolios constructed, why passive strategies may not uh, thrive if there is a regime shift or, or if there is a uh, relationship shift between asset classes? Yes, I think there's a lot of recency bias, uh, which is hard to avoid uh, for good reasons. Um, in a lot of financial research takes place. I mean, I guess we could point to uh, the last uh, decade of a QE-dominated environment as uh, giving rise to a series of interactions in the market that might not be normal. And as that comes to an end, uh, they may change. I think there's also recency bias uh, in the longer run, which is the period since the early 80s has been one uh, of declining yields um, across asset classes. So equity yields have come down, bond yields have come down. There's been asset price uh, inflation. Uh, at the same time, uh, inflation has come down um, as well. Um, that's contributed to uh, returns from stocks and bonds uh, uh, being uh, much higher than returns uh, are required to beat uh, inflation uh, and this negative stock bond uh, correlation as well, which is unusual. If you go back over a couple of centuries, you don't normally see negative stock bond correlation. Uh, normally, that's a positive number. And so I guess to try and put in perspective how important that is, one again comes back to the question of why people are trying to uh, to invest. And I think they're trying to invest to fund needs that they have with a set in the real economy. If they're set in the real economy, it's more likely that inflation uh, is a better benchmark for people. Um, and so uh, when people want to uh, assess the return from a strategy going forward, I think it's more likely that people are focused on uh, inflation plus uh, as a benchmark um, or thinking of absolute outcomes. Um, so a guaranteed outcome um, or a hard um, outcome target um, such as 5% or 6% uh, as being the return that people should expect. Um, now, that's not to say that I'm bearish on the stock market. Um, the, the, it does not require um, stocks to go down to uh, focus people's minds uh, on the market in this way. But from a shiller PE in the low 30s, uh, it does strongly imply uh, subpar returns in many years in the future. I briefly mentioned this in your intro, uh, but I'd be curious, you know, the note that you wrote, um, why passive investing is worse than Marxism, that got a lot mm-hmm. of attention at the time um, and certainly cropped up in a bunch of uh, different financial media. 
what was that like for you? Like, what sort of feedback did you get um, from from clients or, or readers? Uh, and maybe even you got some backlash from index providers. I don't know. What was what was the reaction? Yes, yeah, certainly I was surprised by the scale of the reaction, I have to say. Um, I think the feedback I got uh, from many people was that this was a topic that um, people were concerned about. And it, and it, it often falls between the planks uh, of the way the research is conducted, um, certainly in terms of reach on the sell side. Uh, people don't normally write about business strategies um, um, on the buy side. Um, and so uh, it certainly spoke to a lot of the concerns uh, that people had. I think um, also it found some uh, agreement from uh, people in asset management companies who have been trying to engage with policymakers uh, and try to make the case that there are some strategic issues uh, at stake here, uh, aside from the um, the more specific issues around an individual fund um, and whether an individual asset owner should buy an active or passive fund uh, in that particular case. Maybe you can uh, just sort of quickly summarize your argument, because in talking to you so far, as you said, you're not really anti-passive per se. And you point out that we don't know where the tipping point would be, that in Japan, the share that goes to passive is much higher than it is here. And the Japanese market still more or less function fine. So for those who haven't read your note, which is most people what does that mean worse than Marxism? How would you uh, describe it? And, I'm, and I would not be surprised if the media distorted your argument in uh, some way. <laughs> um, well, the argument is quite a simple one, uh, which is simply to think about how capital is allocated in society. So um, it's the worse than Marxism is definitely not from the point of view of an investor. It's from the point of view um, of society overall and the role of capital allocation um, in society. So it's not about investment outcomes per se. Mm. Um, and one can think about three different uh, possible types uh, of society. One, a fully capitalist society where people make very active asset allocation decisions. Uh, another, a Marxist society uh, where someone is given the job centrally to plan how capital is allocated. Uh, and then uh, a third possibility, which would be a, a sort of fake capitalist society, if you like, in which the capital allocation uh, is done on a sort of passive trailing basis. So uh, companies that have done well uh, simply are accorded bigger weights and equity indices. And I guess the pushback on it, um, and there have been various forms of it, but one of the main forms of pushback uh, was the idea that do companies actually need to raise equity if we're in a, a capital light economy? where the growth especially is coming from uh, more service-based uh, industries, how important um, is the capital allocation process uh, from active investors? And I'd argue that uh, it is still important. I mean, A, because there is still a range of the of corporates in the market that do need to raise capital. Secondly, even if a company is not raising equity capital, often they want credit uh, or bank loans, and that becomes cheaper if they have a uh, share price that reflects uh, all the information. And thirdly, they want to pay uh, employees, uh, often through stock, if that's possible. So is the argument that um, basically capital is being allocated in a way dictated by index providers? Um, well, merely to make the point that um, as new kind of capital um, is invested, uh, there are various ways of thinking uh, about how that uh, is directed to 
uh, corporate. Um, and one can either take uh, a very active decision uh, to say, well, a certain company has certain growth prospects determined by uh, its fundamental outlook or its role uh, in society overall uh, and accorded a certain evaluation and uh, and allocation of capital accordingly, uh, or else uh, it has simply grown uh, to be a certain size um, of a market and therefore as new capital comes in uh, to an index, that that company is simply um, accorded um, extra value uh, purely because of the size it's reached uh, in the index already. I want to ask about what it will take for active management to make a comeback, essentially, and to uh, for managers to convince investors that there's more to life than just the upfront fee. And something I've been thinking about this year is that we have had these periods of volatility in which the relationship between stocks and bonds that we've been talking about has not, in fact, held up the way uh, people mm-hmm. might have expected, whether it's the February volatility or volatility uh, this fall. And yet, when I look across the landscape, I don't exactly see active management appearing to have done all that well, to be honest. And I know that, uh, you know, it was a pretty brutal month for many hedge funds. I think November was pretty Mm -hmm. awful for them. So, A, I'm curious, why haven't we seen this year more examples of active managers saying, aha, this is what you pay us for because we can deliver in times like this? And then B, just what the general strategy will be for the industry to not keep uh, bleeding uh, AUM. Yeah. Um, So I think it's only apparent from conversations I've had with active managers over the last few years that a few people have taken the view uh, that what we really need is a big drawdown in the market, and that will separate uh, active and passive. My response has always been, well, be really careful what you wish for, because the 2008 period was not a happy one for many active managers. So I'm not sure if that is something that uh, active managers uh, should wish for, at least not in the short term anyway. I think there is something that can be uh, said about the potential for active outperformance and the structure of the market. And by that, uh, what I mean is the performance of active managers tends to depend on how many uh, independent bets they can put on in their portfolios. That in turn is a function of how correlated stocks are. And we happen to have gone through a period in recent years where stocks have been, where stocks have been very correlated amongst themselves. And that's an environment where it's generally harder uh, for active managers to perform. So if correlation came down between stocks, say if we at some point arrived in a more benign macro environment, then that would help. The other thing is the dispersion between stocks, how different stocks are in terms of their valuation or their profitability. Again, if stocks are very dispersed uh, in terms of uh, their valuations, that then uh, tends to help active manager performance. But all that really is just tactical. And I think there are too much bigger things uh, that would really help uh, to drive the performance uh, of active managers and, and not so much drive their performance, but, but be the core focus of their business models and restore a faith in the industry. One is this idea of if we really are in a low return world and if the next five to 10 years is one where uh, capital markets can only slightly beat inflation, then um, asset owners are going to have to come into active managers or managers in general and ask for return streams that can fund their liabilities. I don't think there is any such thing as passive asset allocation. So I'm almost definitionally that 
a generation return stream has to be an active decision. Now, of course, it can involve passive instruments as part of that, but overall it has to be active, I think. And the second thing is this idea that uh, by the creation of so many indices and by the cheapening of broad market um, uh, exposure and the cheapening of factor exposure in particular, uh, it finally gives a new tool for asset owners to decide which kind of return streams they should pay for. And an asset owner who has uh, scarce dollars to spend on asset management services logically should spend them on a manager who can give a return stream, which you cannot get from holding a combination of simple factor strategies. Uh, hence this idea that it's not the active share or the uh, overall outperformance of a manager that becomes important, but it's how much idiosyncratic returns they can generate. And by that, I mean the returns that are idiosyncratic to a set of factors that they could buy cheaply. All right, Inigo Fraser Jenkins of Bernstein Research. Thank you so much for that. That was great. Thank you for your time. So, Joe, I found that discussion really fascinating and much more nuanced, perhaps, than I would have thought based on the titles of his research. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can't. <laughs> he said he wasn't at the very beginning that he wasn't act anti-passive per se, but I'm sure it's understandable why people interpreted that he was if you're going to say it's worse than Marxism. But I get his point that from a strict capital allocation standpoint, that the essential uh, truth of based uh, going based on the indices, which is that the indices are weighted towards size and uh, passive investing inherently mm -hmm. will just reward yesterday's biggest companies, that that may be one of the worst ways to allocate capital imaginable. Yeah, and there are some big picture questions embedded in that idea, one of which has to be, you know, what is the stock market actually telling us if the price signal embedded in it is being so distorted uh, by indexes and, um, you know, these massive um, allocations of capital to the biggest companies. By the way, there are other people out there who have had a, a similar idea to this. You know, Matt King over at City has talked before about how Markets used to be self-limiting in the sense that you'd get a bunch of money moving into one asset and eventually it would become overvalued and then money would leave that asset. But he argues that because we have so much passive investing, basically the market never self-limits anymore and you have inflows essentially following inflows. So, you know, this isn't necessarily a unique idea. Yeah, it's interesting to think about that. So obviously, anyone who sort of maybe through uh, a retirement plan just sort of throws money every month at a uh, index fund that uh, tracks the S&P 500 is buying a lot of Amazon every month, and they're buying a lot of Microsoft every month, and they're buying a mm. lot of Apple. It raises the question, would they do that if they weren't just buying the index, or would they not uh, keep throwing money and in fact the lion's share of their money at the biggest company so i really like that idea we should get matt have we tried to get matt on the show we probably have right <laughs> he's been on the show <laughs> wait he oh was? you weren't there though joe okay the you, few yeah, i was about to was, get really embarrassed missed i missed yeah, that yeah. well let's get him back on and talk about that topic <laughs> no. specifically yeah yeah we totally should um and I and i just want to say i you know i talked about a little bit but i am fascinated by this i how the uh the relationship between stocks and bonds just keeps creeping up. 
mm. in our conversation. Yeah. And how many different yeah. things going on in investing could change dramatically if intra-asset class correlations were to change and how many strategies that we think are sound inherently might end up being totally busted in a different environment, one that could come about, say, if inflation were to pick up. Yeah, it's definitely a recurring theme yeah. on this podcast. Uh, we should start an index called Risk uh, Disparity. Risk Disparity. Do Let's do it. We have a yeah. lot of projects. Okay. All right. This has been another edition of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you should follow our producer on Twitter, Topher Forges. He's at Forges T as well as the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. Thanks for listening.